Good, yes. Cardinals, good to be with you. I think I'm supposed to say chirp, chirp. Right? Did I get it right? All right, all right. Well, it is great to be with you. I live just down the road. I live in Fishers, Indiana. And I have two daughters, I have six children, a daughter who's a senior, and she's deciding between Indiana University and Ball State. So we'll see, we'll see. I tried to get her, she chose not to come. Um, so then I have a daughter who's a sophomore. So this is crazy. Maybe I, if you could put my slides up, I'll show you a picture here in just a moment of my family, because this is going to blow your mind. I have six children. That's my family. So this is my son's wedding three years ago. That's my wife next to me. And then my son, who was our second oldest, who was married, and he's on staff with crew at Ohio University, which is where he grew up. I served there for 23 years. And that's his wife, Ellie. He and his wife, Ellie, are on staff with crew. Then my oldest daughter is on the far left. That's Lauren. She's 25. And then my third child is Grant on the far right. As you can see, they are both confined to wheelchairs. They have a very rare disease uh, called ataxia ocular motor apraxia type 1. And so they have been confined to wheelchairs for about 12 years. Um, and then my daughter, Carrie, uh, who's the tall one just to the left of the bride, uh, she's a senior. And then my daughter, Bryn, who's a sophomore. So this was just a few years ago. And then, that's not my son's son that he's holding. That is my son. So my youngest is now four years old. And so he was the ring bearer in his brother's wedding. Isn't that crazy? So they're 21 years separating my oldest and my youngest in terms of birth. So, yeah, he was a super surprise bonus baby. That's for sure. <laughs> but anyway, but we love him. He's, he is... He is dear to us. We love him very much. Uh, so, well, Cardinals, it is great to be with you. And I don't know if you knew this, but I wasn't supposed to be here tonight. I don't know if you knew this, but your main speaker, Tabitha Morales, couldn't make it this weekend. And in fact, she is from Puerto Rico. And so much of her family is, she lives in northern Jersey, or almost basically the outskirts of New York City. And she is sort of in crisis mode, caring for family members that live in Puerto Rico. So that's why Tabitha couldn't make it this weekend. So, so I am standing in for a tremendous woman. And I think you're in for a treat. I'm speaking just tonight. And you're going to be treated to two other speakers uh, this weekend. So I'm excited for you. And I'm glad you're here. Some of you have been here before. Many of you have been to fall retreat or fall getaway before. How many of you? And how many of you, this is your first time? Awesome. I am so glad you're here. You may have decided a month ago to come. You may have decided this morning to come because somebody was twisting your arm so hard they wanted you to be here. And you might even be asking yourself, why am I here? Why did I make this decision? 
I remember making that kind of a decision my freshman year to come to a conference or a retreat and thinking the first day, why did I do this? There are about 10 other things I'd rather be doing. But I think this is the best place for you to be. I think God's going to do some great things in your heart and your life this weekend. And I think there are at least three things that you can get out of this, a weekend like this. And the first of all is friendships. That you will likely establish some friendships that will carry you through college. And not only through college, but I think back to the first retreat that I went to with crew 35 years ago when I was one year old. Just kidding. 35 years ago. I was not one year old. My freshman year. And those relationships are some of my, some of my closest friendships to this day. So I can't promise you that you will have friendships that will last a lifetime, but I think the opportunity is here for you to establish some meaningful relationships that will help carry you through life. Secondly, I think you're going to have a ridiculous amount of fun. And I haven't even seen the whole schedule, but I know I've been to enough of these retreats that you're going to have fun. And a third thing is you're going to have the opportunity to reflect on God's place in your life on God's place in your life. And that's part of my job this evening, is to open up God's Word and see what He has to say to each of us and to us collectively. And the theme around which we're uniting is that, is united, united in Christ. And so I'm going to talk about united in Christ. And then I think tomorrow you're going to hear about united in community and then united in mission. So united in Christ is what we're going to talk about. And in essence, we're going to look at the person of Jesus. We are going to open the Scriptures to a brief passage of Scripture and see what it says about Christ and then begin to try to make some application to our hearts and lives. So the question as we begin tonight is, who is Jesus and I want us to put ourselves in the mindset and experience of first century Jews who encountered this man, Jesus, and were asking the same question. Who is this man? Who is this man that we are still talking about him today? That we are talking about why he is the reason for unity in the midst of a culture that often is at odds with each other. Why do we have reason to be completely unified in the person of Jesus Christ? Philip Schaff puts it this way, as you can see on the screen. He says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, without money or arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing one single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men 
of ancient and modern times. This Jewish man who lived 33 years and was crucified and buried and raised from the dead is why we are here tonight. It's the reason for being united. He's the reason for being united. And as we begin to look at the book of Mark in the New Testament tonight, I also want us to read a quote from H.H. Halley, the famous teacher. And Halley says this at the open, opening of one of his books. He says this. He says, The Old Testament is the account of a nation, the nation of Israel. The New Testament is the account of a man. The nation was founded and nurtured of God to bring the man into the world. God himself, catch this, God himself became a man to give mankind a concrete, definite, tangible idea of what kind of person to think of when we think of God. God is like Jesus. Jesus was God incarnate, God in human flesh. His appearance on the earth is the central event of all history. The Old Testament sets the stage for it. The New Testament describes it. I love that quote because I've never come across anything that more clearly summarizes the whole scope of the Scriptures and how Jesus fits in to the whole story of the Bible than what Halley says here. I love what he says. He says, Jesus was God in human flesh. And that's what we're going to see as we open up the Scriptures today. We are going to see a man who is fully human, but also fully divine. God in human flesh. And here's what I want to say. What I want to say is that Jesus is a worthy object of your faith. In fact, he's the only worthy object of saving faith in the whole universe. You will never find another object or person who can forgive you of your sin, who can save your soul and deliver you into God's presence for all eternity other than the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to see in this passage. And the focus of what I want to say tonight is this. That faith or trust depends on two things. It depends on the object of faith or the thing in which we're trusting. And secondly, it depends on our willingness to examine and know and then trust in that object more and more. So faith depends on two things. The object itself, whether or not it's worthy of trust. And secondly, it depends on our willingness to know and examine and trust that object or that person more and more. So, as we begin, I'm going to take a, take a drink of water, and then I'm going to pray. Slightly awkward. I am really excited to be here tonight. I don't know if you guys are still awake or not, but I'm really excited to be here. Here we go. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is true. It is truer than anything we can imagine or 
write or dream of ourselves, it is established in heaven forever. And it still speaks to us today across the centuries. It is as true today as the day in which it was written or in which the things that are written about took place. And so God, speak to us across the centuries. Show us your glorious son, Jesus, and what he has to offer us. And it's in his name we pray, amen. During my years in high school, which was quite a while ago, a news story broke, and it gained worldwide attention all across the globe. And it was a story of faith. In fact, it was one of the greatest examples of faith that the world has ever witnessed. It was a story of a former political leader and ordained minister. In fact, catch this. He was an Indiana University graduate. And he was a pastor for a while in Indianapolis. But this ordained minister moved to California, and he... he established this congregation of about a thousand people but he began to take them in an interesting direction where he basically began to claim that he himself was their messiah and he promised them if they followed him they would find utopia on earth they could build a perfect community he said but they must follow and they must obey him well obey him they did They gave up their possessions and followed him from California, from San Francisco, to Guyana, South America, to build their utopia. A U.S. congressman from California became concerned and led a delegation of reporters to Guyana to investigate this new commune. Upon their arrival, the congressman and everyone with him were murdered immediately. And then this leader turned to his followers, nearly a thousand people, and ask them to take their own lives. Well, they had great faith in this man, so they obeyed. It is believed to be one of the greatest mass suicides in human history, and it took place about 30 years ago. Nearly 1,000 people took their lives because of faith in one man, Jim Jones. A man from Indianapolis claimed to be Messiah, and these people believed him. They had faith in him. You see, these people had tremendous faith, but the object of their faith was a phony. He had no more ability to deliver a utopia or to be their Messiah than that chair that you are sitting on right now. You see, anyone can make such claims, but the question is, Are they a worthy object of faith? You see, faith defined or trust defined is belief, commitment of mind, attitude, or action. Simply defined, faith is trust. Faith is trust. And trust increases with time as you and I find qualities and characteristics in an object or a person that warrant our trust. It's the foundation of any solid relationship. In fact, think about it.
So, awesome. <laughs> so trust increases with time as we get to know that person or that object. You came in here, you sat down in that chair. You didn't examine it or, you know, wonder how old it was, etc. You have good reason based on your life experience to know that most chairs work really well. True? You ate in the cafeteria today, didn't you? And, and well, some of you did. <laughs> and you exercised a great deal of trust, didn't you? Sometimes a great deal of trust. And when I watch the news, I have no reason to believe that Lester Holt, when he talks about Afghanistan, has fabricated a nation on the other side of the world that doesn't exist. Even though I've never been to Afghanistan, I have good reason to believe that it exists. So you and I trust every day. The atheist trusts every day. Because we couldn't live in a society and a culture without some degree of trust. But ultimately, what we have to ask is who can deliver my soul? into God's hands for eternity. And that's the claim that Jesus made, that he could deliver us safely for all eternity. So we're going to look at a passage today in the book of Mark, chapter 4, and verse 35. And it's on the screen here. If you don't have your Bibles, I'll be reading from uh, the New International Version. And what we're going to read about today is an encounter that Jesus, an experience that Jesus had with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. So, verse 35 of chapter 4 in Mark. It says, That day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So as we look at this passage, I basically want to just make three observations and then talk about some of the implications of those observations as we look at this passage. And observation number one is this, that Jesus sent the disciples on the journey across the sea. Jesus sent them on the journey across the sea. You can see in verse 35, he says, let us go over to the other side. And here's what I believe, based on the prior context of this passage and what follows in the next few chapters, is that I believe this was a test. 
one of many tests in which, G, in which Jesus was asking the disciples, who do you believe I am? When it gets down to it and your life is on the line, what do you believe about me? And it was a real-life exam. And the test was the classroom, or, or the, the test took place in the classroom of the Sea of Galilee. And I want to show you a picture here. This is the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is fascinating because it sits 681 feet below sea level, which is just bizarre because it's not that far from the Mediterranean Sea. And so the wind blows from west to east off the Mediterranean. It funnels down into this ravine, and it can turn a placid blue Sea of Galilee into a hellish torrent in a matter of minutes. And that's exactly what took place here. You see, it's interesting. Jesus was willing to take his disciples into a dangerous situation. Into a dangerous situation. He was willing to take a group of competent fishermen onto their home turf because nearly half of these disciples were fishermen who grew up on this lake and fished it every day their whole lives. But he was willing to take them onto their home court and give them a lesson. Four of these men, as I said, at least four of them were professional fishermen. This was their home court. This was their backyard. But Jesus was not protective of his disciples. He was perfectly willing to lead them into the storm. And I think as we read this passage, one of the things we have to realize is that Jesus will take us each into difficult circumstances. Every single one of us will encounter things in our lives that we never saw coming, that are surprises, that are difficult, that are painful. It was about 14, 15 years ago that my wife and I got the news of the diagnosis of our children. My oldest daughter, my third son, my thir or my, my second son, my third child. You see, they started life very normally. They could walk. They could do everything any other child could do. But about age six, my daughter Lauren began, began to, to just stumble and fall. She walked rather awkwardly. And so as my wife took her to the pediatrician, he said, we need to get this checked out. So we did. And as we took him to... A, a, a doctor there at Ohio University, he said, yeah, I noticed not only her, but also your third child seems to have the same traits. So for the next six years, we drove to and from Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio to get a diagnosis, and it took us six years to get a diagnosis. And even when we did, we found the diagnosis, ataxia ocular motor apraxia type 1. There were three other people in the United States that had that disease. We've never met or talked to any of them. That's how rare this disease was. But one of the things my wife said not long after 
we found out the diagnosis. She said, if God was going to give these children to anyone, I'm glad he gave them to us. And so you see, folks, what I'm trying to say is that God will bring things into your lives that you never anticipate. Whether it's a rare disease, a painful affliction, someone suffers and passes away that you dearly love, God will take us into the storms. The second thing I want to observe from this passage is this. It's really simple. It's just the response of Jesus. Jesus' response, in some respects, is absolutely hilarious. Because he's asleep in the boat. And I find it absolutely fascinating that Jesus is asleep in the boat. It reminds me of a time I was on a boat about 26, 27 years ago. I was on a summer mission in Ocean City, New Jersey. And I was staffing the summer mission. In fact, I was there just this past summer with Sean. Is Sean Warner? I don't think Sean's in the crowd. But Sean was with us. Sean from Ball State. Uh, he's not here. Okay. Um, but I was there just this past summer. But I was also there about 26 years ago. And a friend of mine named Larry Conover said, Brian, let's go deep sea fishing. So I said, all right, let's go deep sea fishing. So several of us chartered a boat. And here's a mistake that I made. I stayed up to about 3 a.m. the night before, hanging out with students, and I was late catching the boat at about 6 a.m., so I had about two hours of sleep, and on the way out the door, I grabbed two things that I never should have grabbed, about a gallon of lemonade and some yogurt. One of the worst decisions I've ever made in my life. And so I chug the lemonade, I eat the yogurt, and then I step onto the boat, and I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating, when I say the moment that I stepped onto the boat, I said, uh-oh, <laughs> I don't feel too well. And so we were on that boat for nine hours that day, my friends. <laughs> I was sick the entire time. But I caught the only fish that was caught that day, this beautiful, beautiful bonita tuna that was about this big. No, it was about, it was about that big. Um, but here's what's crazy is as we were coming in that evening, we were like 15, 20 miles out to sea. And as we came in, the sea was rough that day, my friends. Any Seinfeld fans in here? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the sea was rough. And I mean, we were hitting wave after wave. And Larry and I were sitting in the back of the boat two feet from each other, but we had to yell to talk to each other. It was so rough as this boat hit wave after wave, just slamming them. But even though it was so rough, the first mate of this boat was so exhausted that he crawled up into the stern of the boat and fell asleep. And I was fascinated by that. But you see, friends, Jesus was no different than this first mate who crawled up into that boat in Ocean City, New Jersey. He was fully human. Jesus was dog-tired. So tired that in the midst of a storm, he fell asleep. He was human. If Jesus was hurt, he would cry. If you cut him, he would bleed, just like you and me. The disciples come to Jesus and they awaken him, but not in faith. They say in verse 38, Teacher, do you not care 
that we are perishing. You see, this is not faith. This is an accusation. Jesus, get up and grab a bucket. Well, Jesus does two things. He rebukes or speaks to the wind and the waves, and he says, quiet, be still. And Mark records that the wind died down and it was completely calm. Imagine one moment, it's a hellish torrent, and fishermen fear that they're about to die. And the next moment, it's as smooth as glass. This was no freak of nature. This was no coincidence. This was the creation bowing down to the Creator. This was the wind and the waves hearing the voice of the one who made them. It's as if the disciples were taken back many millennium to the moment when God spoke and the universe came into existence. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. And the creation said, hey, I've heard that voice before. That's the voice of our creator. You see, a great man could teach or lead multitudes. A great man could say things worth reading centuries later. But friends, only God himself could speak and the wind and the waves obey him. It's interesting, Robert Stein, in his book, The Method and Message of Jesus' Teaching, talks about four types of miracles that, are possible, that take place in the Bible. Miracles over creation, where God does things in nature, where he makes nature obey him. Secondly, the casting out of demons, the supernatural. Thirdly, healing, sicknesses. And fourthly, resurrection. Here's what's fascinating. When Jesus calms the sea, they then land on the other side at Gennesaret. And he casts out a legion of demons from a man. And then they get back into the boat and they go across the sea and he lands. And a man greets him and says, my name is Jairus and my daughter is dying. And in fact, she dies. And on the way, Jesus heals a woman who has been bleeding profusely for 12 years. And then he gets to the home of Jairus and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. In 24 hours, Jesus performed all four types of miracles that we witness in the Bible. Creation, casting out a demon, healing, and resurrection. And so in essence, what Mark is telling us is this man, if you cut him, he bleeds. If he's tired, he falls asleep. But at the same time, in the midst of a storm, he speaks and the wind and the waves themselves obey him. This is God himself. So Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, but then he rebukes the disciples. And Jesus identifies the question at which he was trying to get. He camps on the real issue that he's trying to embed on the forefront and the hearts of the disciples. And with their mouths hanging wide open, he asks... Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith?
faith. In essence, Jesus was asking, do you still not see? Do you not understand who I am? Do you not realize who was with you in the boat all along? Remember what I said at the outset, that faith depends on two things. What are they? One, the object of faith. The object of faith. And number two, our willingness to know and examine that object. You see, there was all along in the boat someone with the disciples who could simply speak and the wind and the waves would die down. The third observation and the final observation is this, the disciples' response. How do the disciples respond? They're scared to death. He left them terrified. He rattled every cage or category of human being that they had ever encountered. He shook up their world with three words, quiet, be still. And in essence, he pulls the presuppositions about himself and all of humanity from under their feet. Jesus accomplished the lesson. The exam was over. And the question they asked was not so stupid. In fact, it's the very question that Jesus wanted them to ask. Who is this man? Who is this man? And friends, I would wager, I would beg you that you spend the rest of your lives asking that question. Not from the position of a skeptic, but from the position of one who wants to know this man who is fully human and fully divine. Jesus accomplished the lesson. lesson. The exam was over, over. And he knew that their understanding, his deity, was central to his purpose. Because it was not long after this that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And to the cross. And he was crucified, brutally beaten, and at the cross spread his arms and died. And as he hung on the cross, he bore the punishment for our sin. You see, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because he was fully human and he could take our place. But he was also infinite because he was deity, and he was holy because he was of God, of the very nature and divinity of God. So he could take our place as a perfect substitute, pleasing to God. And because of those two things, he was fully human and fully divine. He was competent to pay the punishment for our sin. He was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised so that you and I could be forgiven. So that if we place our faith in Christ, God forgives us and declares us forgiven 
fully righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He has borne our punishment. So three things, or four things, I want you to think about as we walk away from this passage and kind of ponder it. The first is this, that God is more committed to our character than to our comfort. God is more committed to our character than he is to our comfort. Have you considered the storms of your life? Storms you've encountered maybe in the classroom, academically, in recent weeks. Perhaps your transition to college has in many ways been tumultuous, difficult, that things come at you faster than you ever anticipated. Perhaps you're experiencing tragedy or pain or emptiness or loss or alienation or heartbreak. Or maybe it's happened in the past and you've never resolved it and you've never understood why would God let this happen? Have you considered that perhaps God is trying to shape your life and character by means of these storms. I remember hearing a, a teacher who's not so prominent today, but was prominent when I was growing up. His name is Chuck Swindoll, and he said this. He said, there is nothing which comes into our lives which has not first been sifted through the almighty hands of God. There's nothing that comes into our lives which is not first sifted through the almighty hands of God. He is surprised by nothing. He not only knows the storm that you're in, but he may have designed it so that you would trust in him. But the great thing, friend, is he's in the boat with you. And that's the message we learn today is that Jesus is in the boat. No matter what you or you or you or you or you or I are experiencing, Jesus is with us in the storm. He's with us in the storm. A second thing I think we learn from this passage is that faith is not something we produce or muster up. It's, it's not as if I have to to have a certain level of faith. And faith is not a feeling. It's, it's simply an appropriate response to Jesus. That's what faith is. I grew up in a spiritual background, and I always looked around at other people, and I thought, I think they've got more faith than I do because they seem happier, and sometimes they raise their hands when they sing, and they smile, and they cry sometimes. And I... That just wasn't me. But it made me doubt my faith. Well, that has nothing to do with faith. Faith is simply examining Jesus in the Scriptures and then trusting in what He says. Faith is finding a worthy object and trusting in it. And Jesus is that worthy object. Faith grows as we examine Jesus, and we do that by means of his word. I get up each day, I make a cup of coffee, I sit down in my favorite chair, I open my Bible, and I say, God, I need to hear from you today. 
And you know what happens? My faith grows as I open his word and I see what he has to say to me. So friends, faith is not something you muster up or produce. It doesn't come from inside. It is simply a response to Jesus. That's all it is. It's the appropriate response to Jesus. A third thing is this. Ask yourself the question the disciples asked. Who is this man? Who is this man? If you are here and you are unsure about Christianity, you're unsure about where you are in relation to God, my invitation to you is to begin to ask that question. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And then begin to open your Bible and read it. Begin to have conversations with people who know perhaps more than you and inquire about who this man Jesus is. But I invite you to trust in him. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a while, but the temptation for you is to think you have Jesus figured out. Have you lost your sense of awe for this man? If you've been around for a few years and crew and you've done the Bible study thing and the weekly meeting and the retreats and maybe summer missions, you still can lose your awe for this man, Jesus. Well, I invite you, as the disciples did, to examine this man, to ask the question, who are you, God? Who are you, Jesus? And what do you have for me today? When was the last time you were left with your mouth hanging open, hitting the bottom of the boat as the disciples did? And then finally, let me say this. The final question is, have you yielded your life to this man, Jesus? Because honestly, that's what crew is about. If you climb to the center of this ministry or this movement this weekend, if you hang out with people, it's not a super special crowd. I mean, it is a great crowd to be with. But what I'm saying is at the center of this movement, what you're going to find is Jesus. At the center of this weekend experience, what you're going to find is Jesus. It's not about who can be the most spiritual person in a community. It's not about who can go to the most Bible studies or jump through all the right hoops. It's about Christ. And Jesus is the reason we are here this weekend. And he is the reason we can be unified as a movement. That we can be unified and present to a lost world a Savior who was crucified and buried and raised for them. Let me finish by showing you a couple of images. My mother was an art teacher, so I grew up appreciating art. Um, this is by Eugene Delacroix. And there's another one by Rembrandt. 
called Storm on the Sea of Galilee. You see, this is one of the most depicted scenes in Christian art or history, is Jesus calming the sea. And in his commentary on Mark, William Lane says this. He says, The subduing of the sea and the wind was not merely a demonstration of power. It was an epiphany through which Jesus was unveiled to his disciples as the Savior in the midst of intense peril. Very early on, this incident on the Sea of Galilee was understood as a sign of Jesus' saving presence in the persecution which threatened to overwhelm the church. It is not surprising that in early Christian art, the church was depicted as a boat driven upon a perilous sea, but with Jesus in its midst, in its midst, the church had nothing to fear. Friends, there's nothing to fear. Jesus is in the boat, and he is the worthy object of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace shown to us in Jesus. And thank you that you have this passage of Scripture preserved for us that we today can see that you still calm the sea. That, Lord, you calm the raging sea in our lives. You deal with every storm, and you will bring us safely to the other side. Lord, you are the reason we are here. You're the reason this movement exists. And you're the reason that we are united in Christ. So, Lord, I pray for this group of men and women as they experience this weekend. I pray that you show up in their lives, that you move powerfully in their hearts, and uh, that this is truly a weekend uh, to remember. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.